Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. I am Lee Carlo. I'm here with Chapin Hemingway. Still absent is Jeremy Fisk. I believe he is uh, just starting his day Ugh. right now, working overnights on the film he's shooting in Boston. Uh, we hope to have him back soon. I know that film wraps evidently soon, and he's going to have some time in October, just in time for a lot of fixie films. Because, believe it or not, you know, despite how quiet this year has been in movies and, uh, of course, on the Get Your Film Fix podcast, we are right about now rolling into fixie season, Chapin. Are you excited about that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I guess. It feels a little weird because of the way that this year has rolled out. But there's, I mean, a huge, huge slate of movies still scheduled to come out between now and the end of January when fixie season ends. Um, and we were talking last you night. We the, hope you to say the end of January, or the end of December. Well, I think we go into the end of, we go to January 31st, um, following kind of the award season eligibility for films released. Um, and then I think in February we are planning on having the fixies. Is, is that, does that sound right? We were talking about it last night um, where we were discussing accommodations. We were, for, yeah. For this year. Among other, th- uh, other things. For this year's fixies. Um, okay, but this week we're going to be talking about Clint Eastwood's newest film, Cry Macho. He uh, directed and stars in the film, and it is available in theaters and on HBO Max. Back when we had winners, I was afraid to lose you to the competition. Five times you won the All-American. That was a long time ago, wasn't it? That was before the accident. Before the booze. You know how many people told me to just cut you loose? You gonna say anything? Howard, I've always thought of you as a small, weak, and gutless man. But you know, there's no reason to be rude. You owe me, Mike. You gave me your word. And that used to mean something. My son, Rafael, he's in trouble. I want to get him out of Mexico. You want me to go down there and kidnap him? Please, just get him back up here. Just you? Just me. Um, okay, Chapin, before we get started, something very important. We talked about this last week. If you want to reach us, if you want your voice heard on this podcast, send your voice memos, send your emails to feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com or feedback at gyffpodcast.com. Either one of those will work. We'll get them. You know, I was thinking, Chapin, we pay for that email address, for both of them, as a matter of fact. Um, And I don't think we're getting our money's worth at the moment. So I would appreciate it if people thought about that a little bit as they're listening to the podcast well, we talked about we want to hear from every we want to hear different voices and so if exactly, you're someone and this who is the best way has talked to us about hearing more voices and you're one of those voices we'd love to hear from you we'd love to hear from you regardless um but but i think it's a nice way to encourage people to write in and tell us things that they feel about our work yeah we'd love that um so uh so Chapin, I almost said guys. I'm so used to being three of us. Just you and me. I should be used to that by now. Chapin, Cry Macho, directed by Clint Eastwood, one of the most prolific and iconic people in the history of the movie industry. Um, He is 91 years old. He's been working um, for about 66 years. I looked back to his his first 
job as an actor in a movie. It was in 1955, an uncredited role, but uh, nevertheless, he's been working for 66 years. Um, I tried to think of something to put that in context. Um, The first thing, for whatever reason, the first thing I thought of was um, that Barack Obama was not born yet when Clint Eastwood started working in movies, and here we are, and he's still releasing a movie nearly every year and not only directing them but oftentimes starring in them. Um, He's directed 45 films. He's appeared in more than 70 as an actor. And he is perhaps more than anybody in the history of movies the most recognizable person, most recognizable name, one of the most iconic names. I always think back to 1990, Back to the Future Part 3, which was now more than 30 years ago. He was already being used kind of as a joke when Marty McFly took his name when he went back to the Old West. He was so famous then that that worked. And now here we are about 31 years later, and he's still working and releasing a movie nearly every year. So I was thinking about just kind of him as an icon and what makes him an icon aside from, you know, how prolific he's been and, you know, obviously some of the very influential and iconic movies he's made. Because one thing that occurred to me is that despite how much I think we respect his movies and like a lot of them, I don't consider his movies must be must see cinema. You know, I, I especially in the last decade, there's a handful that I've missed and haven't really been anxious to see. Yeah, and I think we talked a little bit about these guys who release movies every year, like, you know, yeah, Soderbergh and, or... And Woody um, Allen. Woody Allen. Allen. For a sometimes time, yeah. they're not always... Often they're right. not always, like, super big hits for us. Right, and I and I and we've talked about that a lot, so I was, I was hoping we can try to avoid that aspect of this, just kind of like, oh, the, the obvious hits and misses of somebody who releases a movie every year. But my question for you, kind of to kick things off, is just like, what, it, what makes a filmmaker, or if you want to kind of expand it to even an actor, what makes them iconic to you? What is it that you're looking for? How do you define that specifically? Because... I don't think it's necessarily has as much to do with just must-see cinema as we may think. Did you say actor or director? Oh, you know, I was thinking director specifically, but if you want to, you know, expand that to just kind of people working in movies, what makes them iconic to you? Is it just a body of work? Is it the amount of hits? Is it the fact that you have to see their next movie? Is there something specific or is it not that specific? Is it just case by case? Yeah, I don't. Iconic is not the word I think of necessarily first when I think of directors. Um, I mean, I think Clint Eastwood is iconic just because he's an icon. Like he's he is like this great movie star who has a personality that comes across on screen, and we often talk about that. Like like Tom Cruise is a great example, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's just you go to a movie and you kind of know what you're going to get from him, and and he's changed his ways as has as Clint Eastwood has I mean he's playing a different role in this than he did in Unforgiven but like it it's it's a it's the same a little bit you know and um but his and I think you could say something similar about his directing work you know it's not quite as eclectic as someone like 
you know, some of the great directors, like I think, you know, like I just mentioned Soderbergh. I don't think he's not doing that, but like the movies where he stars in them, like I, like the mule, for example, has a lot of similar themes as this one does. Um, have you seen the mule? I haven't seen I it. Have. So. It's, it's, oh, that's good. It's quite good. <clears throat> I liked it a lot. And you know, the two movies, it, it, it comes between Richard Jewell and 1517. I haven't seen 1517, but I know you have. <laughs> and, <Yeah>. um, <clears throat> Uh, you know, neither of those films, I don't think, made much of an impact. So, um, you know, I, I think I think I'm starting to understand what you get when you go to a Clint Eastwood movie. I know you guys reviewed Hereafter, which is movies I've always wanted to watch but have never watched um, on the podcast once, I think, which was sort of the end, perhaps, of the Clint Eastwood, you know, renaissance for you guys, mm-hmm. I know that didn't really do it. The, the, the themes of that film, I think, are sort of lost on me as to how they fit into Eastwood stuff. But, like, okay, let's take someone like Scorsese. You know, a film like The 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 um, the Irishman, like, that's like a return to form. We know what, what Scorsese has done to shape the landscape of film. We know that, like, his film, a film of his in this age is going to be a comment on the films he on the genres he helped shape growing you know when he was a younger filmmaker and i think the same speaks for Clint Eastwood he he started doing it with unforgiven um and so i think he's doing that here and in some ways he's doing that in the mule and you know i i don't know how like your sullies and your richard jewels and those sort of like more immediate true story kind of films fit into that but i'm sure if we analyzed it a little bit we could but even like a thing like gran torino that's like a that is a um <clears throat> that is a deconstruction in a way of his persona and and i think i think that's interesting you know i don't i he's not one of my favorite directors he's not someone i have to see all his stuff but you know he's he's better than ron howard <laughs> <laughs> um i do think it's interesting and you can definitely do this with filmmakers like Scorsese and um, you know I'm sure like Brian De Palma and Coppola and all the guys of that era but you can you you can see the stages in Eastwood's career especially as a director and that the aughts which is the time the time period when I was when his films were must-see cinema for me you know it began with Mystic River and then Million Dollar Baby of course was really successful and won Best Picture and then movies like Changeling and Gran Torino which I didn't love but obviously Changeling and I rewatched that recently and it just totally stands up it's just such a great underrated movie and that sort of ended with Hereafter and then then we rolled into this you know period where he was doing a lot of movies about you know true stories and like heroism and you know 1517, Richard Jewell, Sully, all of those. So it's very clear that he has gone through these stages, but, you know, he will always be known as the man with no name and the director of Unforgiven and Will Money. And I think that's why there is an attachment to movies like Gran Torino and Cry Macho and The Mule, where we're seeing Clint very much as like an aged Clint that we have grown to know. And I think that him as an icon is important in that regard because that's what people want to follow. So 
the movies that I like, Mystic River, which he's not in, Changeling that he's not in, Million Dollar Baby, where he plays something, I think, very different. And, you know, some of these I have to revisit. I don't know how they hold up. But the movies I've always been a huge fan of with his, of course, I love Unforgiven, but it's separate from him, right? It's not, it's not Clint Eastwood on screen. And I think people look at Eastwood and look at his career and look at what he's known for and they want that you know they want to see that again or they want to see how that's matured or aged and so that rolls us into cry macho which you know i'm hearing a lot of things about how this movie is really just about clint eastwood and where he is in life where he is post unforgiven Mm. you know where that has taken him and you know that critique sort of annoys me because i think it's sort of a a way to skirt around reviewing the actual movie as a movie, as a movie, as you know, as we kind of always try to follow. But I do think that whether that's true or not, that's what people are looking for with Clint now. Like they want his swan song, right? They want him to make a movie that, you know, encapsulates his career. So here we have cry macho. He is kind of a older cow uh, rodeo, cowboy you know he had a severe injury he fell into pills and drinking sort of works for Dwight Yoakam's character who hires him asks him to go down to Mexico to find his long lost son and bring him back to him that's the story in a nutshell we can get into the specifics of that and how it works within the screenplay but you know it's the journey of a old cowboy and it's just kind of about Clint's outlook on life right at that at that point in his life at 91 years old so how did that work for you is that a good enough story does that work yeah I mean it's a small film this this isn't the Irishman as we talked mm-hmm. about um it's small in ambition, it's small in scale, um, small in budget. But yeah, I actually I actually quite liked it. Um, yeah. I think it's got some good performances. I think he's quite good. Uh, he's not doing the whole... I mean, he's he's a gristled old man, you know, but, but he's not just... I mean, he is like every bit of 91 he in this movie. He is <laughs> very... He definitely... Yeah, it's like, he, you know, his age is, is very present, but... He's not the like Gran Torino character or the even the million dollar baby character. He's I think a little nicer and I think I was sort of charmed by the idea that he is aware that that may be a little getting a little old, you mm-hmm. know. Um and like I think in, in I wish you had seen um, the mule because in the mule he's got some he's got some really funny energy but it's that's it's, what I've heard yeah um, and and um, that's not present here but I I do think yeah I mean it's I think it works you know it's not it's not a reinvention by any means it's nothing transcendent but for a small enjoyable film it's it's fine it's you know and and mm. um. You know, it's probably good we're watching this now in September because, like, I start to get into my whole, like, existential, what is this movie trying to say stuff 
you know, around the first of October, which pisses you off. Yeah, and, and <laughs> you're I, like, where? You're like, where is fucking Tenant? Yeah, and so you know, I want these movies to start like saying things around that time, and you know, this movie I don't think has a lot to say. Um, hmm. I mean, you know, it's it's musing on a sense of identity and manhood and things like that. Um, but you know, um, I don't know. Is this is does this speak to you about? The border crisis? I don't think so. Um, it's no. not talking about like modern events. It's and I think it's like no. I mean it takes place in 1980 right. too. It was interesting For that it was chosen reason. to be a period yeah. piece. Yeah. Um, it's let's come back to the the you know viewpoints on manhood and stuff because I think there's certainly a discussion there. Um, I, I have to admit that I I liked this movie too, even though I think it's kind of dumb. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like it's, it's a lot of it is kind of dumb. Um, I, mean, I mean, literally a rooster saves the day. Okay. We will get to that because there's like, some just like, like absolute like, nonsense in the, the screenplay. The rooster is named Macho. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So the titular character, you never see him fight. He never does anything. And he's, he's, spoiler, given to Clint Eastwood at the end who says he might barbecue him the next time. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. he's like, oh, just kidding. Um, yeah, I, look, okay, I, we'll get this part out of the way, but we can discuss it in more detail. I, this is a terrible screenplay. It really it, is. Yeah, really, really not good. Um, from the from the structure to the dialogue to... How about the, how about the, the Dwight the Yoakum, motivations? The Dwight Yoakum um, exposition dump there at the beginning. That was like a kind of just kicked you right in the nuts awful and Dwight Yoakam was awful in this too and like I think it's interesting you pointed out that there's some good performances in this movie I agree that maybe there's a couple but Dwight Yoakam not among them and also um, how long did that part take to shoot like three days you could have gotten anybody to be that role and that's the thing and like you know um, Eduardo Manet who plays Rafa who's the young boy in this movie he's also quite bad and oh I liked him him. oh really I thought he was awful um Clint has had his fair share of bad child performances in movies, Gran Torino, Mystic River, all of them, and sometimes they just don't matter, but and maybe it doesn't totally matter here, but isn't the kid in a perfect world really good? The perfect world? Yeah. Are you talking about that's not a Clint movie? Yeah, it is. What are you talking about? A perfect world. With Kevin Costner. Oh, that goes way back? Yeah. I haven't seen it. Um But the Dwight Yoakam point, you know. It's so evident that Clint shoots quickly, right? Like, there's no, like, let's try that again. Let's fix this performance. It's just, like, deliver the lines and let's move on. And, you know, it hurts the movie because it is an exposition dump. And ultimately, everything that Dwight Yoakam is saying is setting up the entire story. So the fact that it's not delivered well is obnoxious. But there's more to be, there's more to gripe about with the screenplay what I really liked, though, in this movie is the relationship he had with Marta, um, who's a Spanish woman that he meets in Mexico while they're sort of biding their time down there. And it was just a very poignant love story. And I kind of wish that the movie was built a little bit more around that because there's not really a before with Clint's character. You know, right. we learn that maybe he lost his wife, but... There's not and much. His child, yeah. Yeah, and there's not much, and I wish there had been more, and I wish that was kind of more what this this movie was about. 
leading him to that woman and maybe giving him some sort of an existential crisis, some sort of decision he has to make surrounding that outside of just his job to get this boy back to the border. Because I thought they worked really nicely together. It was a very quiet, very like poignant and understood relationship that they had. They both lost things. They both, they're both at this older, later part of their life where they're not looking for a lot but companionship is important. And I just wish that that was more what this movie was yeah. because that was great. And everything surrounding it was just so lackluster and rushed and lazy. And I just felt like the screenplay sucked so much that even the good parts couldn't save it as a whole. But again, like I said, I liked this movie because that was sort of the central piece, whether it meant to be or not. Mm, yeah and the romance you know there with that you know them going to that little town and of course the barkeep woman that that sort of nods to uh what you know the history of the westerns i mean i'm thinking yep. of sure um the uh rio bravo for example um so yeah i i like that part too um i think I, it even like looks at once upon a time in the west which um you know, is a Sergio Leone movie that um, Clint is not a part of, but um, that woman is just very reminiscent of of Claudia in Once Upon a Time in the West, just like a very strong solo woman. You have that scene where she basically tells the deputy to get the hell out of there, and like you just kind of see her strength as an older woman and in the West, knowing what she. Ha- what she has and what she needs to do. And I, I, I found that to be a nice little callback. Yeah, that, that was nice. Um, I, that reminds me, though, the, the weakest part of this movie is are the villains. Oh, my God, for sure. I mean, this, this, <laughs> that, that, that scene where the villain has a hold of the boy in the parking lot outside the diner. Okay, but can we, can we back up a little bit sure, first? Sure, 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 sure. Because I think we should talk about this. So, so Dwight Yoakam hires... Well, I don't even know if he hires them. So just a little background on the story. Dwight Yoakam and Clint Eastwood go way back. Dwight Yoakam owns this ranch. It sounds like he maybe owns the rodeo where Clint worked. Um, You know, they have a long history of helping each other out. And for whatever reason, um, Dwight Yoakam's character feels that Clint Eastwood owes him and needs him, you know, inexplicably needs this 91-year-old to go get his son from Mexico and bring him back because he's, he's the only man that trouble, can do yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. And he tells this whole story about how this, this kid is with his mother and, you know, his mother is abusing him or somebody's abusing him, but he's, this kid is trouble, right? He's, he's getting in trouble. He's not going to want to go back. He's, you know, stealing, he's um, gambling or whatever, whatever it is. And it's going to be tricky, but if Clint tells him, you know, he's he worked in a rodeo, he'll be, like, fascinated by that, and he'll come back. Clint goes down, immediately gets caught <laughs> by the mother, who says, like, oh, if you can find him, you can have him, but you're never going to find him. He's a, he's a ba- pain in the ass. Like, he's trouble. You want nothing to do with him. Finally, long story short, we find this kid, and he is not trouble at all. No, like, he's got a he, ban- he like, wears a bandana around his head. Lee. Yeah, and he's is caught trouble. at a cockfight. Yeah, he's not trouble at all. He seems like a super nice kid, and he's immediately excited to go to the border. Doesn't seem to want to stay. So that whole storyline just made no sense. 
And then also making no sense is the back and forth that his mom has pre and post trying to have sex with Clint. <laughs> she doesn't care. She wants him. You're not taking him. It's just you are taking record. him. If you're a female in a clandestine movie, you want to have sex with Clint. Sure. And again, that that falls into the whole like, oh, he's Clint Eastwood. Of course, every woman wants to have sex with him. No, that's that's skirting around the fact that that made no sense in this movie. So where I'm going with this is Clint gets the kid who is very willing and open to going to live with his father. So now we need a conflict, and that's that his mother wants to get him back with her hired guns, who are just a joke. Enter this scene in the parking lot that you're talking about. Which looks like it, they like literally filmed the rehearsal. He, he's like got a, like a soft hold under the kid and is like... That was the yeah. day Clinton must have been like, you know, <clears throat> I need a nap. And well, he had to punch somebody that day. So yeah, it was like, exhausting. We're, we're doing one punch and then and then we're getting out of here. And then, again, later the guy shows up at the end and, like, crashes defeated, their car. Defeated by a rooster. And then defeated by a rooster and they just drive away and the guy's, like, kicking the dirt being like, argh. Argh, and, and why why is the mom, well, first of all, why does the mom have henchmen? Is right. that ever it's, This is, again, no. She's rich, I guess, but like if this you're, is the if problem. you're rich like, in Mexico, you have henchmen. Is that the idea? This this screenplay is just so bad. It's so bad. It's the first draft from a high schooler, and you know, typically, you know, maybe like we were talking last week with Black Hat, we'd say like bad screenplay, auteur director elevates it to a certain extent. But I don't think that Clint Eastwood is an auteur. Like he doesn't do a whole lot. You know, he shoots the screenplay, and that's what we get. There's just enough nice things about this movie to make it work, but it's also unwatchable at many points. <laughs> and I think a lot of it has to do with Eduardo Manet, who I just thought was so bad. Oh, I liked uh, him. I, I didn't mind him. I thought his he had an interesting energy. I mean, he didn't have a lot to do. The script, you know, was not kind to him, but... um. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, are you saying that Clint's direction is, like, transcendently? No, his direction is rushed. And it becomes more and more clear with some of the movies like this. You know, it's it's interesting. It's like, you know, he he makes a movie a year, essentially, and it seems like every now and then there's one that he puts a little more effort into. Okay. You know, and maybe The Mule is a good example of that. And Changeling was... I mean, I don't want to go back a decade ago because he had a stretch where I think there were a lot of movies he was putting effort into. You know, he had Mystic River. He had Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima, Changeling, Gran Torino, all these movies that clearly, you know, took time and effort regardless of how long his shooting days were. But I would say more recently, like... You know, movies like Richard Jewell and Sully and 1517 and this just feel rushed. They feel like, or I should say you can you can see the, the famous short days on screen. Sometimes, and yeah. And that was never present. He's famous for that, right? He's famous for just like, you know, only one or two takes, eight-hour days or whatever it is. I'm sure the 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 legend is not as, as true as, as reality, but, um, you can see it in this movie. Like you can see it with the scenes with Dwight Yoakam. You can see it with, 
the way <laughs> these scenes with the henchmen play out. Like, it just is like... It doesn't give you any sense of drama because it doesn't let you sit in it long enough. Like, these henchmen show up, and that scene lasts 10 seconds before the rooster helps him escape. And it's just like, oh, that's the end of that. Which is why I liked the scenes with Marta, right? That's a good portion of the movie. This is a you know hour and 45 minutes long, and I would say that 45 minutes of it take place in that town where we get to know her, we see her affection for them. She tries to bring them breakfast. They talk. They're going to leave. They spend more time. Like, you get to sit in that. You get to see that relationship evolve. Like, that didn't feel rushed. And that's why that works. And that's why that relationship is so, so nice. But the rest of this movie is just like, okay, next, next, next. All right, check the gate. Like, and it's just, that, that I don't like about his movies. And, when you're rushing through a bad script, yeah, you're not going to make it better. Yeah, I mean, uh, this goes back to our discussion on Soderbergh. It's like, you know, making a movie is a special thing, especially for someone his age. I mean, it's not inconceivable yeah. that this could be his last movie. And with that hanging over your head, I think, you know, he just looks at it differently than we do. I mean, maybe we... Uh, you know, because we don't get to direct movies as often as Clint Eastwood does. But, um, you yeah, know, really silly. making a special movie, um, I think, is really important to a lot of filmmakers. And sometimes it's like, well, this is just what I do. You know, I'm a director. I make movies. And But um, I, I, I think that that drive, I think, like, when you look at someone like Tarantino, someone who film and PTA and those, those auteurs, the auteurs we love making a movie for them is in- incredibly personal. It's incredibly important and they want to make the best movie they possibly can. And they want to say something and they want to every time, yeah. every time. And that is special in a way that, um, you know, those kind of workhorses like Clint Eastwood and Woody Allen and, um, you know, Soderbergh to some extent, it, it, I think Soderbergh's a separate thing. Yeah, he's a like separate thing. Always trying something new. Yeah, but like that is an important ingredient to film. You know, like like a, and 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 maybe like this the pandemic has solidified this in my head a little bit more. Like going to a movie is a special thing, or at least it it it, it feels that way now. You know, like seeing a movie That's in the theater. You know, especially for us, like uh, you know, like. I, Right now, I mean, I love going to the movies, but right now, like, I, I, it's still used to, it was summer <laughs> a little bit ago. Um, you know, like, like, it's a, it's a tough decision to make. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's something special to do. And you want that experience to be special. I, I, did I talk to you about the Jaws screening I went to? No. I, I went to go see Jaws on 35 millimeter. And that's why I went, because it was on film. And I'd never seen Jaws on film. And, Asterisk. I was brutally hungover, um, <laughs> and so I fell asleep a couple times and had a lot of anxiety. But it was so awesome to see that movie that way, and it was so engaging. I, and I don't know if I've ever seen Jaws on the big screen, but like, um, yeah, I saw it once a few years ago. It was so cool to see like this original thirty-five millimeter print, and it was so beautiful. And 
it just felt special. And, you know, in this day of digital photography, digital projection, you know, things of that nature, a movie coming out on HBO Max and in theaters, it doesn't feel as special anymore. And maybe Clint is adapting for this new era we're living in. But there needs to be a specialness with movies, especially in this era where we where this movie is sitting next to, I don't know, whatever else is on HBO Max. Is Friends on HBO Max? Friends, TV shows, right. the White Lotus, which everybody else is into. Like when when it's just the click of your thumb, okay, this needs to be this needs to be more special. It needs to be something significant. And and I appreciate that in films and it's um it's not present in, in a lot of Eastwood's more recent work. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because it actually does remind me of something I wanted to talk to you about, and we can get to it in a little bit. But I'm not, you know, the thing with, I, so I, I've been, I was hoping to be able to rewatch the whole thing before we did this pod, but I've gotten maybe halfway through rewatching Unforgiven. I really wanted to rewatch it after watching Cry Macho. And it's just, you know, the movie is amazing. Like every aspect of it, the screenplay is just brilliant. The acting is so good. You know, the, the character development that, you know, I was thinking like I was thinking like this, the scenes with with little Bill, with Gene Hackman and and English Bob, Richard Harris, who I always forget is even in that movie. Right. You know, he enters as seemingly such an important, significant character. Right. You think he's going to be pivotal, pivotal to this movie, but he's really there to develop little Bill. Right. So you learn more about him. And it's just such a masterful job, does such a masterful job at developing these characters and putting all the pieces together to lead to the climax of that movie. And I don't expect whenever Clint puts a cowboy hat on to get that, right? He's 91. He's he's not doing that, right? Like, so to your point, like, this is somebody who is just making movies to make movies, right? Like, whether it's that he likes to work or whether it's that he just believes that movies should be made, which I almost think is that's what it is, right? Like I finished making this movie and I make movies, so I'm going to make another movie. <laughs> and I just think that's kind of what he's doing at this point in his career. But it's always going to be frustrating, regardless of who we were talking about, to see, you know, what a filmmaker is capable of in a movie like Unforgiven, and then granted, nearly 30 years later, we're talking about Cry Macho, but seeing just like almost the total inverse of that, right? He had he took an amazing screenplay and did an amazing job directing it with amazing actors, and then here has a shitty screenplay and films it really quickly with not great actors. It's just like the complete opposite. So even if there's parts I like, there's always going to be like, you're better than this. Like, you can do better than this, even if you're working quickly, as you always have, even if you're 91. I just think, like, we can, I don't know if I want to say demand more, but expect more from filmmakers who have proven that they're good. Sure. And I think that's kind of what gets on my nerves a little bit about Eastwood just kind of rolling these out 
Like, I was sort of excited about Cry Macho, as I'm sure everybody was, because you're like, it'll be interesting to see what he does with a Western at his age. Like, how, like where, what is this going to be? And I give it credit. It, like, it did settle into this very, like, small, poignant love story, but ultimately, that isn't what the movie was about. You know, it, it tried to be about, like, what does it mean to be a man, like you were bringing up before, which I think is totally lost in this movie. Like, it's just, like, shitty lines of dialogue. Like, oh, I named my... I named my rooster Macho. You know, if you want to name your cock Macho, that's okay with me. Like, oh, very clever. And like, it's like, is the rooster supposed to be a metaphor for something in this movie? I don't. It doesn't. That doesn't work. That's why I was like, hone in on that love story. That's what worked. Make mm. that movie. Yeah. But it's interesting that you brought up kind of the specialness of of movies and that being gone because I was thinking about this the other day. You know my relationship with the superhero movies, the Marvel Universe. You know, I think of the three of us, I fall in the middle. Jeremy wants nothing to do with them. You like them. I've warmed up to the idea of them, but still don't tend to see a lot of them. But at no point in the last 20 years since those movies, or 10 years or whatever it's been since those movies have started coming out, have I ever wanted more of them as much as I do now? Because those signified events at mo- for movies and that is very much gone at least temporarily maybe it will come back when this pandemic is finally behind us but i really found myself longing this year you know i've been back to the movie theater a couple times but i really found myself longing this year for the excitement of a movie release you know, we've got some amazing directors coming out with movies this year. Paul Thomas Anderson, the Coens, Spielberg, Wes Anderson, if you want to throw him in. Ridley Scott has two. And my excitement level is just not what it used to be because I don't feel like movies are events like they once were. Mm. And I think that that does have a lot to do with streaming. You know, this is a perfect example. I even looked to see if there was a good time for me to go see this in the theater as opposed to watching it on HBO Max. Um, but it's it only funny. had like three I, times. I didn't even and it just came out. But, you know, that's where we're at, right? And, you know, I think a lot of those um, movies that I, a lot of those, like the Coen Brothers movies on Apple, you know, that looks amazing the the teaser trailer came out for that black and white looks amazing like we should see that in the theater and we may try to but it's going to be available on h on uh apple and that's going to be tough to not at the same time though ignore well anyway like i just think it's interesting we've had all these discussions about streaming versus theaters and i've i've sort of been a big advocate for streaming right and how they can coexist and now I'm sort of, sort of thinking like, man, streaming is taking away something really valuable. And that is the excitement and the event and the specialness of movies. Yeah. Because they are essentially no different than TV now, right? Well, and I think I they that. are still different than TV. I, I don't want to. They are, but, you know, if... I'm trying to think of a good example. You know, when Game of Thrones was on and a new episode would come out on Sunday, 
you know, looking forward to that release of the next episode versus looking forward to a release on HBO Max next Friday. What's the difference? Yeah. Versus two years ago, you know, a movie's coming out in theaters. You know, I think we're past the point where we, we're there opening night all the time, but we would always still see it relatively soon after its release. In the theater, we'd be super excited about it. We'd be talking about it for a long time. I mean, it seems a long time ago, but you only have to go back 10 years, 11 years, to Inception being released. Right. Right? And there has never been a movie, I think, that the three of us anticipated more. Yeah. And, you know, Tenet was marred by the pandemic and trying to figure out how that movie was going to be released. But I wasn't excited. I was not as excited about that regardless as I was for Inception because of the way that the industry has changed. And I think in many ways it's it's for good, right? But I do miss the the specialness of a movie release. Uh, yeah, I do too. And and but it's still there. And I think all the movies, a couple of the movies you just mentioned are like you know, Licorice Pizza, as we now know, PTA's mm-hmm. new movie is going to be called. Will be in theaters. The they evidently my local the where I saw Jaws and thirty five millimeter. They received a thirty five millimeter trailer of licorice pizza that yeah it's finally very hard to see it yeah and so tempting to go see whatever is playing there to, to get a glimpse of it but yeah i mean there's things like that that filmmakers are doing to help keep that stuff alive which is cool um so yeah i mean i think i also just think like the theatrical experience as i've said before you know, I've started to go to these independent theaters where I still, mm-hmm. where I think these are just a, just a lot better done. The experience is so much better. I saw Candyman in theaters. Oh, you did see it? I did see that, and um, in an independent theater, and it was you know a great experience, and um, you know just the the chains, I just just don't do it well, and a lot of times that's the only option for me, so I have to go. Um, I saw Shang Chi at a movie theater. Like you gotta that. start checking these off. Yeah, I haven't even even done it, so maybe I'm maybe I'm more ahead of you. I don't know, but um, uh, yeah. So, how'd you like Candyman? I liked it a lot. It was really creative. Really, it, I I didn't find it particularly scary, um, but yeah, like it was, it was interesting. I I thought it was really well I was filmed. About it. Um, it's it's it, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I'd recommend it. I'd recommend people see it. Okay. I think that director, uh, I forget her name, is is kind of a visionary. Nia, 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 Nia Costa? Nia Costa, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> you got right, anything well, else? Got, I don't. Um, you don't want to talk about how... how you're, you want to talk about the depths of your relationship and how film is impacting it like I, did, I exposed myself on the last podcast? No what one's emailed. Has anybody emailed me about wanting to go out at all? Any suitors? No. Are you are you hoping for? I, I figured you said you could. They could find you on Hinge or yeah. Well, this thing is you can't, you can't search on there. So I think I, oh. if anybody does want to date me, they'd have to email us directly. And of course, that goes to you first, and then you forward it on. Feed, so feedback again. Well, I just 
if I get it, I'll just change some language in the <laughs> email before I forward it. Okay. Why would you do that? Um, I don't just make it sound like a little bit more inviting for you. There's been a couple that have been pretty harsh. Oh, really? It's just like, tell Chapin to fuck off. And I changed it. And it was just like, tell Chapin to fuck me. And it was like something like that. Yeah, see, that, <laughs> that could get me into trouble because I would think that they were into me and then they just weren't at all. Yeah, maybe I hadn't thought that much about it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Um, well, look, we've got we've got a good slate in front of us. Um, just looking at our list. Chapin, I don't know what you want to do with Many Saints of Newark. Obviously, me and Jeremy haven't seen The Sopranos. You're going to see that. We'll let you talk about it. Um, but in October, we have Dune, No Time to Die, The Last Duel, <sighs> Last Night in Soho, and oh. The French Dispatch. And um, there's some others coming out, too. Maybe Antlers from Scott Cooper. That could be good. Oh, wow. So October is going to be a heavy month. Jeremy is off, so he should be with us. We're looking forward to Fixie Season. Um We've, there's even some movies I know are not on this list. You know, we've got obviously um, through the rest of the year, King Richard, House of Gucci, The Power of the Dog from Jane Campion, West Side Story, Licorice Pizza, Don't Look Up, Locations by Jeremy Fisk, The Tragedy of Macbeth, The Lost Daughter, directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, has gotten amazing reviews. Nightmare Alley comes out at the end of January, which there's a new trailer for from Guillermo del Toro. Um, it's going to be a busy and exciting uh q4 <laughs> okay cool did you did you watch the trailer of um don't look up and be like this the locations in this just aren't i don't know well there's only that this one scene has, has there been another trailer yeah, there's another trailer you know Is the there... white house we've seen the white house yeah i mean jeremy got the white house that was impressive that, that is impressive, especially when Trump was in there for a, for a climate change movie. Yeah, landed the White House. Yeah. So, um, Jeremy shut it down, Fisk. That name's taking on new meaning, as you, I'm sure you will all soon hear. Uh, you got anything else? Nope. All right. That'll wrap things up for this episode of Get Your Film Fixed Podcast. Not sure what we're doing next, but I promise you it will be epic. As we mentioned at the top, you can email us with your thoughts and your voice memos and your requests to date Chapin at feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com or feedback at gyffpodcast.com. Either one works. Both of them get forwarded directly to my Gmail, and then I forward them to Chapin and Jeremy, and then we put them in our uh, <laughs> trash cans. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening. I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee. You didn't comment on my drink. What are you having? It's a gin and tonic. Why does it look purple? It's Empress Gin. Have you heard of this? No. It's naturally purple. It's really cool. And it like changes, the color changes, like depending on what you mix it with. Oh, that's cool. Is it good? Mm-hmm. I've, I've really been getting into gin. Evidently, it is the mixologist's 
uh, hard liquor. That's that's what you want to use. It's the you know, most complex and yeah. I like gin. So many I, different types. Yeah, it's not like vodka where they all kind of just taste the same. Yeah. All right, you ready? Yep. Yeah. 